and what I'm about to say is not autobiographical, and it's not about any of you. Are you intrigued? Um, But a couple have just got uh, married, and they've moved into a new home together. One is um, very tidy. They do the dishes the moment dinner is finished. You can see some uh, nudging going on, maybe. Uh, The other is um, a little bit more relaxed about such things. And one is a lark. And the other is a night owl. And one is a vegan. The other is a carnivore. And how are they going to be able to enjoy life together without uh, driving each other mad? Um, It's going to take um, patience, isn't it? It's going to take... Um, a willingness uh, to be flexible. And what is true in our our homes, and what is true with husbands, with wives, with flatmates, and so on, is also true in the church. How do we live together as God's people? Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, famously wrote a short little book called Life Together. And I think in many ways this uh, passage, verses 1 to 10, We could give it that title, Life Together. How do we live together as God's people? And as we look at these 10 verses, just two points tonight. Um, Living together and living for the future. Living together and living for the future. Um, I said recently, as we think about that first heading, Living Together, that one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is true is that it is just so honest about life in this world. And in the opening verse, Paul, he describes a scenario that can often happen in a Christian community. Someone is caught in sin. The people around that person know that it is happening. And those people want to try to do something to to help. There's a a need here. But look at what Paul says. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, um, I know that we've got a few doctors here at St. Peter's. And um, the word restore, it was um, often used to describe um, how a doctor might um, reset uh, a dislocated bone. Um, it's, it's a painful, it's a necessary process. It has to be done. And uh, that word is also used of James and John mending their nets in, in the Gospels. And so the idea here is of something or someone being brought back into their original condition. And this is always the goal of what we call church discipline. And this verse, it doesn't uh, tell us everything we need to know about that um, reality. But it does say some things that are really important. When restoration is required, look at the manner in which it's to be done. Look at the way Paul says it's to be done. It is to be done by those who are spiritual, the mature. It is to be done with others. That's uh, an important point. It's not a solo activity. And it is to be done with a spirit of gentleness. 
A spirit of gentleness. I think there's be a way of um, preaching this passage um, and just kind of stopping there and then moving on to the next little part of the text. But I think it's very hard for us to hear that phrase, spirit of gentleness, and not think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is exactly how he described himself, isn't it? He was gentle and lowly in heart. And this is the way that he restored Peter. In John chapter 21, when and Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus did speak to Peter. Jesus did confront Peter. But how did he do that? Jesus didn't come and just hammer him, did he? Jesus didn't come and lambast him. He didn't tear strips off him. He didn't crush him. No, instead, he asked him questions. Peter, do you love me? He gave Peter food. And interestingly, he gave Peter the opportunity to have a new memory. He gave Peter the opportunity to declare his love, his allegiance to Jesus around that fire. We see the amazing, I think, the amazing pastoral wisdom of Jesus Christ because memories, they linger, don't they? Memories of failure linger. And so Jesus came to Peter and he gave him these questions. He gave him this food. He gave him this new memory, this opportunity to to say, I do love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. That is how Jesus helped a man who was crushed by his sin. That is how he brought him back to his side. And I think Paul is saying that is the kind of attitude you and I are to have to brothers and sisters who struggle, who fail, and who need help like this. And then Paul, he gives uh, something of a warning. Maybe you can um, see that. He says, if you're ever involved in this kind of thing, what you need to do is you need to be very careful. You need to watch, he's saying, that you too are not tempted. Now, what temptation is Paul talking about here? Maybe um, he is speaking about the, the idea that if we're helping someone struggling with a particular sin, whatever that might be, that we ourselves might be drawn towards that sin. That we might think, well, that sounds quite um, appealing. And curiosity killed the cat. We might look at that person and think, well, maybe I would quite like to do that thing that they're doing. That could be the case. But I think the most obvious answer here is pride. Most obvious temptation here, I think, is pride. Pride in this situation. You see, if I can take one of um, Jesus' most famous parables and just kind of adapt it slightly. If you or I were in the scenario that Paul describes here, if we were the helper, well, it would be very easy to think, wouldn't it? I thank you, Heavenly Father, that I am not like this man, this person, this person that I am trying to help. 
I could never do that thing that they've done. But if you and I know what Jesus says about the human heart, well, you and I know, don't we, that the truth is that each of us are more than capable of awful sin. And so I think Paul is saying to us, we need to be careful. We need to keep watch on ourselves. If called in some way, whatever way, to, to help others like this struggling with sin, we need to remember our own sinful tendencies. And I think we also need to remember that if a brother or sister is caught in sin, that they are not the only ones involved in that activity. We should have compassion. And we should remember that they have and we have an enemy. And that the same devil who may have temporarily blinded them, well, he is also capable of blinding us. And so we need to take care. We need to watch out. We need to treat this person with gentleness. But Paul says, keep watch on yourselves. As Paul continues to teach what it means to live together, he says we're not just to live gently and carefully. He says we're to live lovingly. He makes this point in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens, he says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, one of the things we've seen in Galatians is that the false teachers who were coming along were very good at giving people extra burdens, adding things to the gospel that became difficult, hard to carry. They were telling people, you have to do X, Y, and Z to be a real Christian. And so it's interesting that Paul uses this language of burden-bearing bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let me carry that for you. That is the kind of attitude that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Let me help you with that burden. Maybe it's specifically the burden here of some kind of sin that someone needs help, a situation they need help in. Maybe it's a, a very, a much more ordinary kind of burden. But the Holy Spirit works in us and makes us not just look out for our own interests, but the interests and the concerns of others. And I think this is very true on Sundays. And I think sometimes if you and I, if we could just see a kind of cartoon thought bubble above each other's heads as we walked into this church, and if we could just see in maybe just a couple of words or, or very short sentences, the kind of burdens that people in here are carrying as they walk through those doors, then it would make a big difference, wouldn't it? People may be here tonight with massive burdens that nobody knows about. And our privilege as Christians is, is always to move beyond the superficial. Move beyond the superficial with each other. To start to learn what might have happened to the people sitting next to us. 
and where we can to share something of the load. Now, this is what Jesus did, wasn't it? He carried our burden, he carried our sin, he carried it all the way up to the, the top of the hill, to the cross. Jesus has done what you and I couldn't do. And even now, he is still doing something for us, still carrying our burden, still praying for us as our great high priest. He's interceding for us. He has us on his heart tonight. And notice that Paul says, when we imitate the Lord in this way, when we carry the burdens of others, he says we fulfill the law of Christ. <clears throat> We're not saved by doing activities like this. But we are saved for good works, for acts of goodness. And so as we live together as God's people, God is calling us to live gently, to live carefully, to live lovingly, and also to live humbly. Paul introduces this in verse 3. I, I mentioned <coughs> excuse me, Jesus' parable already. And one of the great dangers in a Christian community is starting, for whatever reason, to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Um, as I prepared this sermon, I was reminded of um, the famous story of Muhammad Ali. Um, he was once, <coughs> excuse me, on board a flight. Uh, the plane was ready to take off. Maybe you know this story. The stewardess turned to him and said, it's time to put your seatbelt on. And Ali said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And uh, the stewardess said, well, Superman don't need no plane. And you and I, we're often um, tempted to think uh, more highly of ourselves than we should, uh, aren't we? And when I used to work for UCCF, um, every year we'd have a, a conference in January, a training conference for all the staff workers. And about 100 of us would pile into this like conference center for the week. It would be a great week. Uh, there'd be all sorts of um, fellowship, teaching. Um, but there was often, there was a real temptation to walk into that week and justify our existence. And Jason, Jason Clark, who, who organized the conference each year, I think he he knew this. And what he would do after outlining the program, after going through the fire safety notice, um, after welcoming the speaker, he would sort of turn to all of us and he would just say, don't play the comparison game. Don't play the comparison game. Don't think of, let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. See, all this that can happen so easily in the Christian life, in Christian ministry. So easy for us to compare ourselves with others. It's so natural for us to not be Christ-like, to put ourselves first. But maybe as you look at verse 3 and 4, maybe you can see what, what looks like um, an apparent contradiction. Doesn't verse 4... Doesn't verse 4 seem to say the opposite of verse 3? Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. 
I think this verse and the one that um, follows it, it points to our need to live responsibly. Um, instead of judging others or inflating our own egos, we are to remember that, that one day each one of us will give an account of our lives before God. And that means we are to take responsibility for ourselves. I mentioned um, Peter's restoration later. And uh, uh, earlier, sorry. And I think there is a, a picture of this in John chapter 21. After uh, Jesus recommissioned him, told him about his future death, Peter turns and he sees John and he says, Lord, what about him? And maybe you can remember Jesus' response. It's basically, don't worry about him, you follow me. And living as part of God's family, having a faith that is corporate as our faith is, does not mean that our individual lives don't matter. Christianity is not like communism, where our individuality, our personalities are sort of destroyed by being part of this collective. Now, each of us are called to serve Christ in the different circumstances that we find ourselves in, and each of us are to bear our own load. And Paul um, highlights our differences in verse 6. And he speaks of those who are taught and those who teach. And um, in our language, the latter are ministers and elders. And so maybe you can imagine why I might find this verse um, a little uncomfortable to preach on. But Paul says that one of the responsibilities a congregation has is to share all good things with those who teach. And ministers, leaders in a, in a congregation, they're not to serve for their own gain. They're, to, they're not to abuse their position. But I think what this verse is teaching is that one of the reasons they are to be paid is so that they can give their time, their attention to the work of preaching God's word, shepherding God's people without having to do a second job on the side. There's uh, lots more we could say about this. Maybe you can see there how it connects with the whole idea of, of life together, of harmony, of being with one another. This is what God wants for us. God wants for us to live. He wants us to live together in a way that reflects something of the wonder, the beauty of the gospel. So this is our life together. This is what God calls us to, to live in this way, to live gently, carefully, humbly, lovingly. But in this passage, we don't just see our life together. We also see what it looks like to live for the future. To live for the future, verses 7 to 10. And in these verses, I think the picture, it kind of changes a little bit. And uh, let's think back to the newlyweds at the beginning of the sermon. Um, imagine if when she said yes, she was saying yes to living on a farm. Now, that has happened, I think, for some people in our church. Uh, this was Marianne's dream growing up. Um, I had her permission to tell you that tonight. I am a kind of sore, I guess. But um, every farmer has to live in light of the future. 
And what they have to do, they have to live, they have to realize that the way they live now has an impact on the harvest to come. And the early starts, the long days, the, they do all these things for a reason. And this farming metaphor is used by Paul to describe the, the Christian life. And he speaks of sowing, he speaks of reaping, he speaks of a harvest. And Paul, God, wants us to have our eyes fixed on the future. Now, if we contrast that with the devil, what does the devil want? I think the devil always wants us to focus probably either on our past. When the devil comes to us, he, he brings things up, doesn't he? Or maybe the devil wants us to focus just on the here and now, the present, the pleasure, the, the joy that we would get from committing this, this sin. The devil never wants us to, to focus on the future, but God does. And in speaking like this, what uh, Paul is doing, he's picking up a theme that just runs through the whole of Scripture. And he begins by speaking about it negatively. Maybe you can see that. Do not be deceived, he says. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And Paul's just reminded us of the reality of a day of future judgment. And he builds on it here. You and I are not to think that how we live is unimportant. We are not to think that because God is gracious, that we can just live as we please, that we can just do what we like without any consequences. I mentioned Bonhoeffer earlier. This is what he called it. He called it cheap grace. No, what we sow, we always reap. So you think back to some of the works of, of the flesh that we've thought about in the last uh, few weeks in Galatians, in chapter 5. If we pursue those things, if we run after them, if we repeatedly engage in the kind of activities that God condemns, then what is it that we expect? And what Paul is talking about here, Paul is not talking about the person who sins and runs to the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is speaking about is a pattern of life. Paul is speaking about reveling in sin, deliberate activity, and this is sobering, isn't it? So tonight, how are you and I, how are we sowing? Are we sowing to our own flesh? Are we deliberately sinning and thinking, God doesn't see, God doesn't care? If we think like that tonight, we are wrong and we are in danger and we are doing damage to ourselves and we need to stop it. So Paul speaks negatively. But Paul also speaks positively. There's a, there's a second type of sowing here, and it is the sowing that we're called to as believers. Look at what he says. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. He speaks in the next verse, next verse about doing good. He repeats the idea in 
in verse 10. But what does it actually mean to sow to the Spirit? It's the kind of um, language, the kind of phrase we might use. What does it actually mean? Well, Paul has talked um, all through kind of chapter 5 and now into chapter 6. He's spoken about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit, living by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. And so in a sense, what he's doing is, is reinforcing these ideas. We sow to the Spirit when we do those things which please God. But to think about this, this agricultural um, um, language, listen to this. This is how somebody has put it. Sowing to the Spirit means sowing the kind of seed that comes from the fruit of the Spirit. Sowing to the Spirit means sowing the kind of seed that comes from the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, kindness, faithfulness and the like. Now we're sat here this evening and um, it's the school holidays and we've maybe got work tomorrow and maybe we're retired, maybe we're just starting out our careers and maybe we have different responsibilities. And I think often we can think, can't we, that our Christian lives are just, well, they're very ordinary and we kind of muddle along and we go from one Sunday to the next, and maybe this is just me talking, I don't know, but we, we should never think <clears throat> that small acts done for others, done for the Lord Jesus Christ, are insignificant. And you and I, we need to know that every time we choose to follow the way of the Spirit instead of the flesh, in small decisions every day, then we are pleasing the Lord. And that is a wonderful thing. Friends, there really is. There is a harvest to come. And sometimes we doubt that, don't we? Sometimes farmers find uh, that hard to believe in the middle of winter when growth seems really slow. And when growth seems slow in our Christian lives or the life of someone we love, we can feel that way too. But what I think this passage reminds us of is that even the little things, even the smallest things, well, even those things can lead to a great harvest. And our lives, they may seem very ordinary, but they are all bound up with a wonderful, a great harvest to come. Well, I said this part of the letter is about um, living for the future, but I think there is a sense in which the future has already begun, because when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, um, the last days began, and you and I tonight, we are, living in the, we are living in the overlap of the ages. An eternal life, the eternal life we will one day enjoy, is not simply a really long time. No, eternal life is a quality of life. And sometimes people say, don't they? They say, life is all about who you know. But as someone once put it, consider the company Christians keep. Consider the company Christians keep. We know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
we have fellowship, we have communion with each member of the Trinity. This is a wonderful gift that we can enjoy already as Christians now. This is the one, this is who we are called to enjoy. And if you and I, if we are in Christ, we are new creations. We are those called to belong to him, called to be who we are in God's sight. But I think that does not always mean fireworks. And so much of the Christian life is unglamorous. It is taking one day at a time, isn't it? It's putting one foot in front of the other. It is honoring Christ in the everyday lives that you and I live. And so tonight, if you are weary, if you are weary of doing good, if you are tired of doing the good, the godly thing, well, I want to, I think God would want to encourage you to keep going. I think God's word tonight should help us fix our eyes on the future. As Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good. Our labor is not in vain. And I just want to close, I want to close by underlining verse 10. And especially the last few words. Now look at it with me. God calls us to lives of love. He calls us to do good to all. But who is it that is to be the special object of our care? Well, Paul says it's the people we'll live with forever. It is the household of faith. And I've mentioned marriage a couple of times tonight. God wants us to have a special appreciation for his bride. God wants us to be all in with our brothers and sisters. He doesn't promise that we'll find that easy. But all of us tonight, if we are Christians, we are the blood-bought children of God. And we have the privilege of living in a different way to the world around us. And in a world full of lonely people, you and I are called to be a loving family of God's people. Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have, how would we finish that sentence, if you have a great church building, if you have a really effective mission statement or vision, if you have all kinds of programs, no, if you love one another. Psalm 16 puts it this way, as for the saints who are in the land, well, they are the excellent ones in whom is my delight. And so may God give us that kind of attitude. May he work that in us. May we live together and live for the future. May we remember that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has been so kind to each of us, the one who has carried our our burdens, the one who has shared all that is good with us, and the one who is making us more and more like himself. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love for us. And we thank you that as your people, you have 
bound us, you've united us to Christ. And you've united us to one another. Help us live in the joy and the fellowship and the harmony that you call us to. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.